Well, good evening. Good evening, and I hope you're all doing well. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. We started our series in the book of Jude last week, and this evening we continue, and we'll begin in verse 5. Jude's epistle in verse 5. Let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you asking that you would just speak to our hearts. Lord, we can listen to the voices of the world and listen to so much confusion and lies and falsehoods and forget that your word is truth. Yes, we're called to contend for the faith, as Jude tells us in this brief epistle. But so many times we become weary and well-doing, and we shouldn't. But we do because we begin to think that somehow we're responsible for the outcome. But Lord, we're not. We're just responsible to stand strong, to be faithful, to walk with you, to contend in your strength, and to look for your glorious return. Lord, give us strength and strengthen us through the study of your word this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll remember last week we opened this book. We went through our introduction, and we saw that Jude warned the Christians he writes to about the adversaries that they had, the adversaries of their faith. He explained why he wrote the letter, but he also identified the adversaries that they had. They were godless men, as he says in verse 4, that were condemned by God for their wicked ways. They were false teachers that taught heresies within the early church, and he did not want it to continue. He wanted to call them out. I think one of the things we have to do as leaders in the church is call out falsehoods. Call out heresy. Call out the falsehoods that our culture is promoting and the things that we're being told are normal and okay and maybe not even sin. We need to speak out. And I think there are a lot of people today who are afraid to speak out. There are a lot of people who are afraid to step up and contend for the faith. That's the theme of this letter. Jude is not afraid. He now begins in verse 5 to do something that I find quite interesting. He provides his readers with a detailed description of the enemies that they would be facing. And he does it by citing three examples of God's judgment against ungodly in the past. Now, you can teach by comparing something that's going on in our world today to things that have taken place in the past. I often do this. When I look at the first century church and I look at the things that we're studying in the book of Acts on Sunday mornings or in the epistles on Wednesdays, and I, and I study these things and I see similarities and, and stark comparisons between what we're going through now and what we've seen happen in the past. It's helpful sometimes to go to the Word and read those accounts that talk about the things that took place in the past so you can better understand your present, so you can better understand the times in which we live. And that's exactly and precisely what Jude does. Let's read the whole section, and then we'll come back over it, and it'll take a little time to go through it, but in verses 5 through 7, citing three examples of God's judgment against the ungodly in the past, he begins in verse 5 by saying, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. 
And the angels who, who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Strong comparisons. Of the time in which Jude lived, strong, powerful comparisons to the time in which we live as well. Let's look at the first. The first is in verse 5. God's judgment against the unbelieving Israelites. That is, in talking about these false teachers, these heretics that had infiltrated the church, he starts by bringing our attention to things that took place in the book of Numbers in chapters 13 and 14. God's judgment against the unbelieving Israelites. God's people. God's people who didn't believe. Now, here's the thing. The people did not trust God. They didn't trust God to bring them into the promised land. And again, I encourage you to read in Numbers 13 and 14. But they didn't trust God. See, what happened is Moses and Aaron sent 12 men, one from each tribe, to spy out the land for Israel. But only Joshua and Caleb trusted in the Lord's promises at Kedesh Barnea. Only they did. They were the only two of the twelve that came back and said, we can enter into God's promises by faith. They believed God's promises. The other ten did not. And so the rest of the people, they rebelled against the Lord. And their rebellion was unbelief. The first thing that Jude brings our attention to is unbelief. Now, unbelief exists among God's people. That is, there are people of God who don't believe God. What does that mean? It means they're not trusting God. It means they don't, they don't believe that God will fulfill his promises. They're not serving God by faith. They, they truly do not believe. And as a result, is it fair to say they're not believers? I mean, if you don't believe, can you be a believer? Well, it's true that we struggle with our faith, and sometimes we say, oh, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But we're talking about a group of people who were judged for their unbelief because they didn't trust God. They rebelled against God. They rejected God and refused to do as God told them to do. In fact, as a result, the Lord swore that all, except Joshua and Caleb, would fall in the desert, and indeed they did. All of Israel, that is all of the adults at that time, all of Israel was delivered from the bondage of Egypt, but most of Israel did not choose to live for God. Does that surprise you? God saved them all, but most wouldn't live for him. And you know, that what's sad about that is he had done the same miracles for the people who rejected him as he did for the people that received him. In fact, when you think about it, all but two individuals, excluding Moses and Aaron, of course, all but two didn't trust God. They didn't enter into the promised land after just a few years because of unbelief. And so they wandered for a total of 40 years until that entire generation died out, and then the children of those people who didn't believe entered into the promised land. Now, why would he bring our attention to this? Why? Because he's talking to us about the enemies of the faith. 
that we're to contend with. And one group of people that we have to contend with as we contend for our faith in Christ, one group is this, the group of those that simply don't believe you can trust God. We're not talking about people that are atheists or even people that are in other religions or have other faiths. No, we're talking about people that claim to be his children who refuse to trust God. We've seen a lot of that lately. What do you put your trust in? Because Jude would challenge us to think about that. What do you put your trust in? You put your trust in governments? Do you put your trust in other people? Do you, do you put your trust in things that can protect you or you think can protect you when in fact the only one that can is God? You see, one of the things I realized a long time ago is that if you trust God, God is trustworthy, but God is trustworthy even if you don't trust him. But if you don't trust him, you never experience the blessings of God that come by faith. And he's warning them. These enemies of our faith do not believe God. There's something else they did, and we read it already. They, like the angels who rebelled against God, rebelled against God's authority. And so he uses the example of the fallen angels. We read it already. I'll read it again. And the angels, in verse 6 of Jude, and the angels who do not, did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. What is he talking about? Well, there's a lot here. And I need a few minutes to unpack it so you'll understand. But even if you didn't understand it in its entirety, you can understand this much. Just like he likened the enemies to those that don't believe, here he likens their, the enemies of their faith to those that rebel against authority. Okay, so that's the two things we've seen already. Those that don't believe and those like the angels that rebel against authority. So that we've already talked about two very important things to be on guard against and to contend for. That is, we need to be aware that some don't trust God and some rebel against God. And there are many in this world that do. Okay, so let's break this down. This is all about God's judgment of the fallen angels. And if you are not familiar with some of the scriptures, you won't know what he's talking about. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a refresher for some of you. For others, it may be the first time you've heard some of these things. Uh, We read in Genesis chapter 6 regarding fallen angels that when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, in Hebrew, the Benai Elohim, saw that the daughters of men, the Baphadam, were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. That is, they had 120 years more before God brought the flood. The Nephilim, or the fallen ones, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. Bless you. So here's the thing. What what we're talking about in Genesis chapter 6 is the foundation of Jude's argument, his comparison. Remember, again, he's likening the men, enemies of the faith, to angels that rebelled. But if you don't know the account of the angels that rebelled, then you may not be familiar with what he's talking about. Let me break it down for you. This is the I think the origin of demons and certainly the origin of fallen angels. Have you ever stopped to wonder 
Where did fallen angels come from? When did they fall? Not talking about Satan in particular. We know about his account in the book of Genesis. We're talking about fallen angels and we're talking about demons, which are evil spirits or disembodied spirits. Where did they come from? Did God create them that way? Well, certainly not. When God created everything, he created it in six days, rested on the seventh and said what? It is good. One day he said it twice, and then he also said it is very good. So God created all things good. Some of his creation corrupted themselves afterward, including mankind, but not only mankind. There were fallen angels, and we'll talk about what demons are and where they came from. See, before the flood, certain angels, notice, before the flood, certain angels came to earth. They cohabitated with women. Now, angels don't marry in heaven. Jesus gave us that understanding. But these were angels that fell to earth. What does that mean, to fall to earth? We tend to think of it as they're up in the sky and they fell. But that's not at all what's being said here. They left their celestial position, wherever that is, around the throne of heaven or in that, those other dimensions, and they chose to be limited to this dimension, to this world, and as a result became physical beings limited in this world. Now you say, well, how could that happen? Well, to be fair, Christ, God himself, became a human being, but he became a human being by being born into the world. But still, he entered the world and was for a time limited by the world, not in his power or in his deity, but as a human being in his humanity, he functioned as a man. The God-man, but still man. And all the powerful things that he did, he didn't do by his own power. He had chosen not to act in his own power as the Son of God. He acted in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, he did what any man or woman can do as God leads them to perform great and miraculous signs. But what happened here is there were a certain number of angels that chose to leave their positions of authority. And they found themselves willingly in this world living among men and women. How that happened, why that happened, the details of that are scarce. But we do know that it happened because the word of God is true. Amen? So, mankind's judgment for this sin of getting involved with these angels was the flood, which came 120 years later. But there were these fallen ones. In in Hebrew, it's nephal, which means to fall. The fallen ones, the nephilim, And we know that they were on the earth before the flood. What were these creatures? These creatures were the unholy offspring of fallen angels and mankind. I've heard pastors try to work their way around explaining this and come up with an explanation that's easier to digest. But at the end of the day, when you read Genesis 6, 1 through 4, that is what it says. And Jude, 2 Peter, even the book of Revelation reflect back on this event And Hebrew literature, like the apocryphal writings and other writings, reflect back on this event, and all of them interpret it as literal. It was written and interpreted the same way. So this happened. This happened. Again, how and why and all the particulars are scarce, but it did happen. And and here's the thing. These creatures, these fallen ones, the Nephilim, 
They lived during those 120 years prior to the flood. Eventually, though, they died in the flood. They died. They drowned in the flood. That was part of the reason why God brought the flood. Most people are not aware of that. Among other reasons, that was one of the reasons. But they're called mighty heroes, and it's interesting that that word would be used, or that phrase would be used, because our culture today, we're fascinated with superheroes. Marvel, DC, other, other comics, other movies, other books. It, it's, it's crazy how much we're looking for superheroes today. But this has always been true. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, Greek and Roman mythology, Norse mythology, Hebrew mythology, if you're, if you're aware of any of the legends that are written, and especially those coming out of the areas surrounding the Middle East, you'll know that all of these myths had at their center that there was a group of gods who oftentimes would cohabitate with women and give birth to superheroes. I mean, that's the story of Hercules, the son of Zeus, right? Perseus. The, the list goes on and on of the myths where you have someone who is a demigod, half god, half man. So is it any surprise that those myths were based on some fundamental truth? I'm not saying the myths were true, but they were based on a truth. And that truth was, or and is, that there was a time where they actually did live on the earth. These hybrids, if you will, these individuals who were supernaturally strong, supernaturally capable, they were superheroes. And we're told that men of renown, heroes. Okay, so that explains the origin of so many of the things we read about from ancient cultures. Where did they come up with the idea? Well, it was based on truth. Is it truth? No, but it's based on truth. In fact, a lot of times it's strikingly similar to the truth, to the biblical truth, but not exactly. It was embellished, and it was written after the fact, and so things were changed, and stories were told, and they, yes, they had a basis in truth, but the truth is that these things actually happened. Okay, well, here's the thing. As I've mentioned already, they died in the flood. What happened to the spirits of the Nephilim? Well, the truth is we really don't know. Uh, who knows what happened to them when they died? As, as human beings, when we die, our spirits, uh, well, as Christians, to be absent in body is to be present with the Lord. But before Christ died and rose again, our spirits would go to a place called Sheol in the Hebrew, or Hades or Paradiso in the Greek, and Christ referred to Abraham's bosom as Paradiso, the Greek version of that is Paradiso. That was a place where the righteous dead went to wait for Messiah to deliver them. And then you had this place of torture and torment called Hades. And again, does that sound familiar? Well, because all of that also made it into the Greek mythos, again, based on truth. So when you read the Hebrew scriptures and you see similarities between the Greek and Roman myths, don't say, oh, well, you know, they all have these myths. No, the myths are based on the truth. The truth is in God's word. Can I hear an amen? That's what you're seeing here. Well, the evidence becomes even stronger because you see, every culture we've ever encountered on the face of the earth has legends of ghosts, evil spirits, and disembodied spirits. Well, where did they come up with that idea? Well, it was based in some truth. Here's what we do know, that when these Nephilim died in the flood, their spirits were not the same kind of spirits that you and I have. 
So they would not have been bound to the areas of Hades or Sheol necessarily. In fact, it's likely that this is the origin of disembodied evil spirits, ghosts, if you will, or even demons. Because there are these evil spirits. The Bible is so clear on this matter. Jesus cast them out. His disciples cast them out. You can't argue what Scripture says about evil spirits. You can't argue that demons exist. You can't. Nor can you argue that Satan exists. We're not talking about Satan today. These disembodied spirits, more than likely, again, that part of it is a supposition on my part, but this does explain that there was a time where these things may very well have happened. This could account for the origin of evil spirits, ghosts, the demons that continue to influence mankind today and unfortunately run for office. This would explain their strong desire to possess a physical body. After all, had they had a physical body, they would want to possess a body. The one distinguishing characteristic of an evil spirit or a demon in Scripture, or actually any culture and any writings, is that they want to possess a human body. Okay? So, I don't find that difficult to understand. That makes perfect sense to me. I don't like it so much. It's not a truth I wish to explore beyond that. But it is true that that this is a very logical explanation for the origin of demons and fallen angels. And you'll note that they're not the same thing. Fallen angels are one thing, demons are another. And so all of this is wrapped up in this time of rebellion that these angels brought against God and his throne. The fallen angels rebelled by leaving heaven, and they had these children, and then those children rebelled against God and brought evil into the world and all types of things. And then when they died, their spirits, they were evil men. Now their spirits were evil And I don't know how, I don't know why, but they definitely have the ability to possess those that open themselves up to them. Explains a lot. Okay. Now, what did God do with the angels? Because if you're thinking like me, you're thinking, okay, you bring the flood, you wipe out all of the Nephilim, and now they're, they're, they're evil spirits, okay? They are. What about the angels? Because they weren't spirit beings, and they were angels. They were not human beings. So what happened to them? Well, that's exactly what Jude is talking about. When he says it this way, and the angels in verse 6, back in verse 6, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness. Notice the tense of those verbs, has kept. Implication by the grammar is that still kept. Has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So they are still bound today, but they will be loosed. Okay, so here's the thing. We know about them from Genesis. We know what Jude has to write. And as we studied a number of months ago in Second Peter, Peter talked about this as well. He's, these, this is mentioned in, in at least four places in Scripture. In Second Peter, in chapter 2 and in verse 4, Peter said this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to, and in your English it will say hell. In Greek, the word is Tartarus, the only time in all of Scripture that that word is used. Tartarus. If he did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. And then he goes on to talk about 
Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's, he's also talking about the same thing that Jude mentions, or I should say, Jude is saying the same thing that Peter's saying, that was talked about in Genesis, and interpreting it the same way, by the way. When I read this, I realize the word for hell, or Tartarun, we translate it Tartarus, it describes in Greek mythology the lowest hell. So maybe you're familiar with Hades. Well, you will also be familiar with Tartarus, which is described in the Greek myths as as far beneath Hades as the heaven is high above the earth. So yeah, the Greek myths talked about these things, and there are Greek words used to describe these things. Only in the Bible we get the truth. In the myths, we get embellishment. We get a spin or a story based on the truth. So the Greek myths identify Tartarus as a prison, a prison of the elder gods called the Titans. Now, isn't that interesting? Because in the Greek myths, you have the gods, the demigods, and you have the fallen angels, right? You, you have the Titans. And that parallels to the truth, which is that there were these fallen angels, that there were these offspring and, and, and it's interesting, you have all of these same things, and it all lines up very similarly to what we know to be true. So the Greek myths are helpful in understanding the truth, but they're not the truth. What I see here is a very interesting, interesting parallel. The Greek myths identify Tartarus as the prison of the elder gods or the Titans. Many of these myths are poetic descriptions of actual ancient events. But it says that they were bound in gloomy dungeons or a place held for judgment. That we're definitely told. Now, getting back to verse 6 in the book of Jude. These angels were bound by God in darkness, held for judgment on the great day. They left their God-given position of authority, principality, and origin. We've already covered that. They abandoned their habitation, their dwelling place, and their spiritual bodies. And now they're bound, as were the titans of Greek mythology, with everlasting chains. That's exactly how the Greeks describe the chaining of the elder gods or the titans. What you need to know, this much you need to know about Greek and Roman mythology. The titans were the elder gods. They came first. They were overthrown by the Olympians, which would be Zeus and Poseidon. They overthrew them. They were the quote-unquote gods. And then they gave birth to demigods. So all of this kind of lines up. All right. So the titans, the elder gods, as the Greek myths say, or for us, the fallen angels, they're going to be bound in Tartarus until God chooses to release them. That means somewhere on this earth, they are bound until God chooses to release them. Now, you would think that if that were true, there'd be another scripture talking about them being released, right? Revelation chapter 9, verse 14. The final scripture I'll submit to you to understand this. I know this is a lengthy explanation, but most people are not aware of these things. So we go to Revelation chapter 9, verse 14, and we see that it says there, there's a sixth angel, and he said to the, uh, or God said to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. See, I, I, don't, I don't have a hard time understanding how that refers directly to the things we've already studied from Genesis 6 
2 Peter, and also Jude. So as I put those scriptures together, I realized that these angels, apparently there were only four. They were actually given a number. They're bound by God in an earthly prison in a specific location. And what's interesting is that location is in Iraq, near the Euphrates River, or under the Euphrates River. You know that the Euphrates is the cradle of early civilization, right? You know that from the book of Genesis. It's also the site of the Tower of Babel, or was the site of the Tower of Babel, the city of Babylon, the center of false religions and world dictatorships. The Euphrates River, interestingly enough, according to Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, will be dried up during the sixth bowl judgment. You have the sixth trumpet, and then you have the sixth bowl. They both have to deal with the Euphrates River, where they have to deal with these angels. So this will prepare a thoroughfare for a huge Eastern Asian army to attack Israel, we're told in the book of Revelation. But these four beings are not evil spirits. They're fallen angels that have a physical form, and they're being kept ready for this exact moment in the future. The purpose of their release is to orchestrate a death, the death of a third of mankind. Now, that's more of a study on Revelation, but I wanted to put it all together for you. So you understand, it's not one isolated scripture that that Jude is referring to here, or one scripture in Jude. It's four scriptures throughout the Bible, Old and New Testaments, that point to the truth about fallen angels and about the potential origin of demons. But all of it is talked about with one purpose, to explain that the enemies of the church are compared to these creatures. Now, does that hit hard? He's describing them not only as unbelieving like those that died in the wilderness. He's describing them and comparing them to the fallen angels that ultimately, with their wickedness, brought about the cataclysm of the flood because it said that all mankind's thoughts were evil continually. The influence of these fallen angels was so bad that God brought the destruction in which the flood say only, what, eight people were saved. Is Jude doing a good job of making it clear how serious these issues are? That's the point. So we have unbelief. We have rebellion. And I want you to hold on to these thoughts. What types of things will the enemies of the church be promoting? Unbelief, rebellion. Let's get to the last and the final. I know that was a lengthy explanation, but it should be helpful in understanding these things. Then we get to verse 7, and God's judgment against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is talked about. This is where Jude goes next. It says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they serve as an example of those who suffer this the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so if you're keeping score, unbelief, right? Rebellion, sexual immorality, and perversion. Sounds like basically primetime TV. YouTube. Sounds to me like our culture. I mean, you can't miss this, right? I mean, our culture is filled with these things. So do we need to contend for the faith? Can I hear an amen? Yeah. And I'm glad Jude gave us this wonderful letter to encourage us. 
Now, the reason that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, talked about in the book of Genesis in chapters 18 and 19. By the way, Peter also talks about it in 2 Peter. The outcry of those abused by the wickedness of the people is why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. We're told that specifically in Genesis 18. The outcry of those who were being abused by the wickedness of the people was the reason God brought judgment. But it was also because of the sexual immorality and the perversion of the people, we're told here. You know, just when you think you have seen the depths of depravity completely exposed, you hear about something else that your mind couldn't even conceive of happening in this dark and wicked world. There is no end to the perversion and sexual immorality of man. I will go so far as to say I think it's motivated and inspired by some of those demons we just talked about. But then again, mankind is pretty wicked at its core. And if you give yourself over to these things, Sodom and Gomorrah will always be the result. Heck, I feel like I'm living in Sodom and Gomorrah. This culture is so filled with the same very vile, disgusting things that brought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But praise God, Lot was ushered out. Amen? See, one thing I know, if God's going to bring destruction and his wrath on this world, I'm not going to be here for that. And if I am, he's going to preserve me because God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. Can I hear an amen? So either he'll take us out, preserve us in, watch over us, but we will never experience the wrath of God because the wrath of God came upon Jesus Christ on the cross and all of us who put our faith in him will never see it, never experience it. Only the grace of God for those that trust in him. But this world, this world is going to burn. This world is going to burn. The total depravity of the men of the city of Sodom is, is, is pictured for us, and I don't even like to read it. I'll just summarize it in Genesis 19. Lot, he's concerned to protect the angels from these wicked men because the men were so completely given over to lust and to homosexuality, they wanted to rape these men, they wanted to violate Lot's hospitality, which in the Middle East is a significant issue. You don't violate hospitality. He even offered their da- them his daughters, and they had no interest, in, no interest in Lot's daughters. They were so perverse, all they wanted was this wickedness. And then they threatened to rape and abuse Lot for his defiance. Well, thankfully, the angels, these were not fallen angels. These were godly angels. They protected Lot and his family from these wicked men. And then the angels directed Lot and his family to get out, flee the city. By the way, when the day comes that the trumpet blows and God's angels and the voice of the archangel say, it's time to leave, I am not going to go to the bank. I'm not going to check my stock portfolio I'm not going to drain my 401k or make sure my taxes are paid on my house. I'm going to leave. I'm going to get out. And I pray that you will do as well. You know, the method by which Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed is talked about in Genesis 19 as well. Both cities, as well as the surrounding towns, were completely destroyed. You know, Lot's wife desired to return, and she was destroyed as well said that she turned to go back. That is, she headed back, and she was destroyed. We're told Abraham saw the smoke from afar off the next morning. That's all that was left, the smoke. 
That day is coming on this world. I don't believe we'll be here for it. But why did Jude mention it? Because in these last days, which go all the way back to the day of Pentecost, in these last days, we can see it. We can see it today. We could see it then. You'll see it over and over again. The enemy of the faith will try to infiltrate the church, and it will bring unbelief. It will bring rebellion against authority and sexual immorality and perversion. So when those fireballs come down from heaven, they're going to go right for those places that celebrate these things. We won't be here. Amen? Well, finally, in closing now, he takes these enemies and he compares them to these ungodly examples. He's given us the comparison. He's likened them to that, but he he elaborates now on verses 8 through 10. He says, in the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the angel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they are the very things that destroy them. Wow. He goes on to curse them. Woe to them, woe to them. We'll get to that next week. But for now, let's just go back over it. This is the summary of what Jude has to say. He's comparing them to three ungodly examples in the past which we've already talked about. You see, they were as perverse, these, these infiltrators of the church, these heretics, these false teachers, these enemies that he was contending with, that we're contending with, were as perverse as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were dreamers, he says, who invented fantastic false teachings that corrupted them. They were sinners that gave themselves over to their fleshly desires. They were as rebellious as the fallen angels before the flood, which we've talked about in depth. They were men who refused to recognize any spiritual authority in their lives. They were guilty of pride as they refused to show respect for angels. You know, angels are a higher order of creation than mankind. He created us a little lower than the angels, the scripture says in Psalm 8. Yet even angels know their place before God. Men should know their place among spiritual beings. These men did not. They bad-mouthed angels. They, They spoke about spiritual things as if they knew what they were talking about. They didn't. And then this bit that he talks about, most people are a little confused. He says, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. A lot of people see that and like, well, when did that happen? I didn't see that in my Bible. And of course you didn't, because it's not in the Bible. As I shared in our introduction last week, Jude quotes from not only Scripture, but apocryphal apocryphal books, which were the literature of the day that supported his viewpoint. That doesn't necessarily make them Scripture. It just means that he quoted from other sources. Peter did not. Peter stayed with the Scripture. Jude said, he spread it out a little bit more. He looked at the Scripture, but he also used certain other sources, literary sources that were extant at the time, that they they were in existence at the time. Now, 
he's quoting from a book that was called The Assumption of Moses. It's a Jewish apocryphal book. We don't really have it, but we know that it existed. Michael the Archangel was in this book, a work of fiction, was disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. Michael was sent to bury Moses after he died on Mount Nebo. Now, Moses did die on Mount Nebo, or at least it says God buried him. But in this book, Michael was sent to bury Moses. And in the book, Satan demanded Moses' body, for he was a murderer. Remember, Moses was a murderer in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. But that's not why he's quoting from the book referred to as the Assumption of Moses. He's quoting from this book to make the point that though a a high-ranking angel, Michael still showed respect even for Satan. He showed respect for authority. Michael is called one of the chief princes by the book of Daniel, Daniel in the book of Daniel. We know from Revelation 12 that he's going to lead the armies of heaven against Satan's angels. By the way, Jude is the only biblical writer to specifically call Michael an archangel. And that's because he's quoting from the Assumption of Moses. Archangels are mentioned, but he's the only one that's named in the scriptures. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we hear about the voice of the archangel. But archangels don't come up in the scripture, really. Now, the important point is that when Michael, in this account called the Assumption of Moses, was dealing with Satan over the body of Moses, he committed Satan to the Lord's judgment. He didn't slander Satan or even accuse him. Michael. One of the highest-ranking angels didn't do that. What does that mean? You better have a little respect for spiritual things. That's the point he's trying to make. The assumption of Moses does not have to be true in order for Jude to use it to make his point. He quotes from what we call a non-inspired literary source. Why? To explain a scriptural and spiritual truth. By the way, Paul used a similar approach when he was speaking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. He quoted from Greek poets. We'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to Acts 17. Jewish believers in the early church would have been familiar with this story called the Assumption of Moses. The Assumption of Moses is nothing more than a fable, a myth, but it confirms his point. But notice as we get to verse 10 and as we close, he says, after quoting from this book, he says, yet these men, who are these men? Those that they were contending with those that were unbelieving, rebellious, and perverse, these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Very harsh words for the enemies of the faith. Very, very harsh words. They were as unbelieving. Notice he talks about unbelief there in verse 10. They were as unbelieving as the Israelites in the wilderness. They were guilty of blasphemy as they spoke about things they didn't understand and they lived instinctually. That is probably the best word to describe how people are living in the culture today. Instinctually. If you want to see the way animals live in the wild, you set up one of those cameras, right? That the animal can't see, right? Where the photographer hides and, you know, sits there in a a blind and just sits and waits and you get all this wonderful footage, right? And you watch and you see how animals act. Animals don't necessarily quote-unquote think. They act by instinct. Now they have thoughts. Their minds work. But they're driven by their base nature. Their basic nature. Eat, kill, mate. 
it's, it's the instinct that drives them. That accurately describes those that live like animals today. And in fact, it's interesting that these are the very same people that tell us we evolved from animals. Well, maybe they did, but I didn't. I'm a child of God, amen? <laughs> of course they didn't, but they think they did. They tell themselves that because they want to rule out the fact that they're accountable to their creator. So they were guilty of blasphemy, talking about things they didn't understand, living instinctually like animals, not like men made in the image of God. And brothers and sisters, their wicked behavior would ultimately lead to their destruction, and that is the point that Jude is trying to make. They were as perverse as Sodom and Gomorrah. They were as rebellious as the fallen angels, and they were as unbelieving as the Israelites in the wilderness. And so Jude gives us, in just a few verses, an overview of a lot of things that took place in the Scripture. But all of them point to these basic facts, or this basic fact. There are enemies to our faith, and there have always been enemies of our faith. And there will always be, until Christ comes again, enemies of our faith. We put our trust in God. We submit to him, and we live our lives according to God's word. And that puts us at odds with these fallen individuals. So you woke up today and you said, I feel like I'm in a war. You know why that is? You're in a war. Theme of this book, Contend for the Faith. You're in a war. If you walk out on your front lawn and bullets start being fired at you, you say, well, I think I'm in a war, or I'm in Chicago, or Philadelphia. You're in a war. And I think the point that Jude is trying to make and wants to wake us up to is most Christians for a long time have been living like they're on a playground. There's the slide. Whee! There, there's the swing. The merry-go-round and round and round. They're on a playground. But we've always been on a battleground. It just, as of late, it's become more apparent because the bullets are flying, the swords are swinging, the bombs are dropping. And a lot of Christians are freaking out. The ones that are freaking out are the ones that never realized there was a war and they were in it. Brothers and sisters, contend for the faith. You've been drafted, you've been called to arms. I think about what happened in the 1700s. I think about what happened when this country was founded and they were waiting, literally waiting for Britain to make their move. And we all have read about Paul Revere, right? One if by land, two if by sea. They knew they were coming. But Paul Revere's job was to alert the troops that the British were coming. Brothers and sisters, the enemy isn't coming. The enemy is here. And you better wake up and contend for the faith. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, these rich examples, Lord, from Scripture, which help us to recognize our enemy. Recognizing the enemy is half the battle. Recognizing that there is an enemy is the beginning of it. But recognizing the enemy helps us to know where to contend. Help us to protect one another, to protect the church by studying your word, teaching your word, by giving our hearts to you and loving one another. Help us, Lord, to stand in the spiritual warfare that we have been called to, that is fast becoming not just spiritual, but actual warfare as well. May we stand for you, may we honor you, may we live our lives for you, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.